One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, fam? Lucas here. I want to take a moment to announce a couple of things to all my new listeners on the podcast. Firstly, if you're looking to upgrade your brain function, whether that be through reducing brain fog, enhancing verbal fluency, improving confidence, motivation, drive, or even orgasm intensity, then check out my nootropics course, which can be found on my website at www.ergogenic.health. And you'll see at the top, it will say courses where you can use the discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. In addition, I also have a sleep optimization masterclass and a testosterone optimization course that can also be accessed on my website. Again, you can use the same discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I'm very excited because we have a very special gentleman joining me in today, all the way from the US yet again. Um, Today, I have someone who uh, sort of reached out to me. We sort of connected maybe a couple of months ago, um, and we noticed that we had a lot of things in common Um, And so today's episode is going to be very diverse um, and we're going to be exploring all things mood disorders, um, professional athlete mindset, male depression and suicide, alternative methods, nootropics to medications, clinical experiences with clients, phenomenal clinic case studies, 
the mindset of failure, trauma, and how this affects our behavior. So, Dr. Michael Militich, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much, Lucas. I am so grateful and honored to be here with you today and excited about where we're going to go. Yeah, me too, me too. So maybe, Michael, do you want to uh, introduce yourself to my audience, let them know like your story and, and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question, Lucas, because honestly, a lot of what I do, or I, I have to say the majority of what I do is sort of birthed from a genesis of personal experience. It's not coming from, although I've done a lot of formal training, much of my impetus and sort of grounding and motivation comes from my personal experiences. And some of those I'll just sort of list briefly without going into tremendous detail right now. But, um, you know, I was... uh, Born into an immigrant family with a mother that had uh, a severe car accident when I was very young and then developed lupus as a result of that with all its attendant mental and physical sorts of severe difficulties um, back before lupus or back before lupus was even known as a disorder. Wow. So she had she was literally on death's doorstep for literally 24 seven, uh, almost every day of the year. Um, and I was as the oldest son, the sort of person that would be the, the watch person to see what her health was. So I became very, very attuned to someone's both verbal and not particularly nonverbal cues of being well or non-well mentally and physically. And then, uh, my Haven became uh, sports and became, playing all sports at, uh, as much as I can, as many as I could, and um, really found that a lot of the, there were many other traumas that I had throughout childhood that I had mentioned before on some on other places, but I had taken, I had found a way as a real youngster to take the pain, the that I was feeling converting it in a certain way without even necessarily, not deliberately or consciously converting it into energy. And so the energy went into sports, went into academics as well. And um, really interestingly, I think um, kind of merged the two in, I really wanted to be a doctor obviously for very organic reasons. And then um, I became a, uh, I started training in Olympic weightlifting at 15 years old and uh, combined the two Olympic weightlifting with a pursuit in science first, biology um, and the mind I became you know, very interested in neurofeedback and how to control our our emotional and mental systems when I was still a teenager, because I had to do that for survival uh, sake, just for example, in order just to get to sleep at night. So uh, that became a real kind of a combination of things that I developed, got to medical school, continued to train hard through medical school, uh, fortunately, I was allowed to have my, if I was on call, I was allowed to have my weights in the um, in the hospital. And I, while I was on call, I would, <laughs> I would stop and train. Um, 
from there, I won the national championship, literally the week of uh, the Canadian national championship, the week that I graduated from med school. So, and at that time, I'll just tell you where I was at. Uh, winning that gold medal well, it meant more to me than graduating at that moment. Yeah. Uh, continued with an internship, won a silver in the Pan Am Games. And then from there, um, sort of put my medical career on hold for a minute moved up to Montreal and then uh, joined the Olympic squad for training for the Olympic Games and sort of merged these two interests together. Um, for, uh, that was kind of the beginning of where everything began and then had a pretty significant and severe injury tore a gluteal muscle off my greater trochanter six weeks before the Games, even after having made Olympic standard and missed the games, uh, developed a severe depression and thought that there was something really wrong with me that I was in this severe depressive state and really unable to function, think. I was offered high-level residencies, Harvard, McGill, places like that, but literally couldn't, couldn't move, couldn't think, couldn't operate within that. So I ended up doing family practice in a small town, doing emergency medicine, grounding myself, and then found a sort of began to self-discover that much of the illnesses that people were coming to me with in the emergency department and so forth were stress-based. And many of the provoking, I would always ask, why are you coming now? Like, why at this minute? And it all, once I put the word now in, Lucas, it almost always connected with stress. Wow. So I start, you know, there, you start to develop this sort of innate sense of body and brain, mood, everything being connected, including disease, immune response, all of those sorts of things. So from there, I went on and finally got some grounding back in medicine again, and then um, did a uh, residency in psychiatry, um, child, adolescent, and adult, and then um, uh, functional neurology, and then later on, functional medicine, uh, metabolic medicine became board certified in all of those things. And then I'm now an advanced fellow in, uh, in metabolic medicine as well. So along the way, realized that I really wanted to learn how to talk to people and help people uh, deeply. So I did psychoanalysis and studied that, got a certificate in that, particularly with an emphasis on child development. So that became a major, major part too. So really where I'm at now is integrating all brain-body experiences together in whatever people may have that they come to me with. So I know that's a long-winded story, but uh, I felt like probably necessary details too. Absolutely. Absolutely, Mark. And I think a lot of people, you know, will find many elements of that story very inspiring. I mean, at least I do to a degree, you know, there's so many things there that I can sort of relate to in, in terms of like that athlete mindset and, um, you know, viewing your sport as the be all and end all. And there's nothing else apart from you and, you know, um, performing. So I'd love to I'd love to sort of explore more around what you mentioned in regards to um, converting that energy into more of a instead of it becoming a, a destructive energy it became more of a, a productive um, energy. So let's sort of explore maybe 
how you went about sort of channeling that energy into, you know, growth and development. I'll have to get, again, I'll go back to some personal um, sort of references on this. Um, one of the things that was uh, in the culture that I came from and certainly in the family was the use of force. And I was, um, for example, uh, hit a lot and hurt, physically injured a lot. So in the middle of these sorts of things, I would develop the mindset, this very early on, six, seven, eight years old, of you're not going to break me. You know, that was a phrase that I would say in my head. And it's literally what kept me going through those tough times. And I would also convert that into the other side of that coin was with my mother's health and being able to be attuned to every single element that might be going on even though this is not something I would ever recommend charging a six or seven or eight year old with responsibility wise, it was still there. So it allowed me to sort of say, okay, no matter what the obstacle is, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to find a way to get through this. Now that's, that's what I mean by the energy. There was no doubt in my mind that I was going to channel that in order to get through something. But the flip side of every sort of power, in my opinion, is a wound. So I realized that a lot of very, very high level athletes had had my experience after I began to treat athletes. So I began to see this as a theme, Lucas, whereby on the one hand, the things that make athletes, world-class athletes, professional athletes, professional performers, particularly powerful. And I don't mean that in a, just a physical way. I mean, in terms of their energy, you have to be very, very careful with that because right on the other side of that is the pain and the wound that can take you all the way back into the dark places. So Dealing with that dichotomy what became a very critical part of life. And uh, that's, that's kind of a, that's been a big theme. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there's so much there that I can like personally relate to in regards to like, you know, I was just telling you before we started recording that yesterday, I announced to my audience, you know, that I just finished university, I had my final class yesterday and, you know, I was, I I was proud to cry on camera to share that experience with people um, because a lot of a lot of my motivation to 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 build my own brand and to become pow- quote unquote powerful in this sense um, sure. to create was actually stemming from not feeling good enough um, you know not making it as a soccer player so like a lot of you know and that's a common theme again like you know I. I mentioned to you that I just respect that so much. It's time to begin to redefine what we mean by a strong man. In the past, we've had men that have felt like the definition of how they have to live is as a lone wolf or, you know, the cowboy by himself and exhibiting no emotion, um, not being affected by things or else you're weak, not admitting to defeat or else you're 
filled with shame or made fun of or something such as that. And I've studied a lot of young boy development, and that's being taught maybe unconsciously from the time that males are infants. For example, there's a study recently came across that it takes much longer for parents to respond to a crying boy than a crying girl. Hmm. So it even begins in infancy whereby boys' emotions are discarded, treated with as if they're unimportant and just be a big boy or just be a man or grow up or those kinds of things are given to men, to boys, and they then are forced to drive their emotions underneath underground mm. and then feel ashamed by them. So all of a sudden they get older in life and become expected to be people that connect and relate emotionally but have been also trained to do the opposite. So what you did in being able to sort of uh, embrace the emotions inside you and express them shows so much courage and so much you're so much being evolved as a man that I think that that could be a model for being able to redefine what that means your strength at what you're doing with all of your work at, at such a young age and, uh, and such a high, high le world-class level with being able to be vulnerable and accessible is, is a new definition of, I believe, maleness. So mm. I was really moved by your story. Mm. Yeah. I, I hope, I hope that also had the same, had the same impact on other men out there. It's like, because the question I ask myself, Michael, is like, what can what can we do to change, you know, the the norm, or like, what what can we do to actually help men in this sort of situation? So, great question, and it's something that I think really needs to be asked at multiple levels, Lucas. I think starting with parents, what can we do as parents? What can we do as teachers? What can we do as coaches? What can we do as friends to another man? What can we do as women or men that love a man? Um, so those are actually individual, in my opinion, questions along the line of ma male development. Mm. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that, and we can go into each one of those. I'm happy to do that. But my point is that depending on the relationship with the boy or man and dependent upon the role we play in their lives, what we can do above all is to encourage self-awareness and in including, when I say self-awareness, I don't mean it in any of the woo-woo ways that are being discussed now, I mean a complete, complete awareness of one's emotions, both internally, introceptively, as well as psychologically, hmm. as well as the emotions of those around us and being present in those emotions with someone. Hmm. 
The greatest thing that I feel I can offer, for example, a patient at the beginning is first of all, offering an, a, a sort of protected area of trust, Lucas. And after that, offering my understanding. If we can understand someone and show them that they are understood at the beginning, those are the two critical things, security and understanding that I would begin with in all of those categories. Mm, yeah, that definitely definitely makes sense. I mean, we, we, we explored that aspect of um, a, it's a degree of counseling, I guess, just holding space, giving them the, you know, opportunity to express themselves freely in a non-judgmental way. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's something that a lot of men would be craving, you know, like, cause they talk with their friends, but they don't, I'm just speaking on behalf of like, generally speaking, most men mm-hmm. will talk with their, with their friends, not in, not to that, to that level of depth sort of thing. They'll just, it's usually superficial, like, how are you going, man? Like, yeah, all good, you know? <laughs> All good is the, it's a reflexive thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's also funny how you mentioned um, the point you mentioned around self-awareness um, and taking note on how they're feeling, not, not using objective data. Like, cause I think a lot of the, a lot of those that get carried away with the whole biohacking space, you know, tracking your sleep, like tracking your heart rate, all these objective data points are useful, but as you're saying, definitely honing in on the subjective states and particularly like emotional states is really is really important. I'm so glad you brought that up. I you know, because I think that first of all, tremendous respect to the people that are that are in the biohacking space. It's because you're trying to make yourself better you're trying to begin to own your own health Mm. traditional medicine allopathic medicine has failed i mean it it is it has failed around the world waiting for a disease to present itself and then trying to give some kind of cure in terms of medication or ultimately surgery or something of that sort is Part of the, and, and there's a lot of good things being written about this now that are not conspiracy theorists, but they're very, very much drug industry driven. Mm. Um, there's a professor at Stanford whose name escapes me right now, but he's written a book about big pharma and about just how much it's driven allopathic medicine. So hats off and kudos to those that are trying to trying something more. And I think the biohackers for, and I'll give an, you know, just simple examples of the wearables, right? The, the rings for our sleep and the uh, Apollo neuros for our vagal's tones and those sorts of things are attempts to try to gain more control over our own health. So, medicine has left a major void people are moving to fill it in however we have to be very very careful now that we don't take those things and use them as substitutes for the drugs Mm. because then too many functional medicine people are becoming like allopathic physicians just do this hack or just do this 
uh, just do this measurement or just take, do use this wearable or, and you're one of the few people that are cognizant of just how powerful the nootropics are and just how powerful these other things are, but you need to keep a hold of the big picture Mm. and integrating that into what we're talking about, I think is where critical change has to come in overall healthcare. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was just saying on a podcast two days ago about how nootropics can be used very powerfully, but they really are just like the icing on the cake. And also they're there as a tool, just like seeing a professional like yourself, integrating that into the whole, into the mix to really get the best sort of outcome for um, the client. Because I, I think and I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of a lot of those that are that get into the whole nootropic space. Oftentimes, mm. they're substituting for a lack of in some area. Like they'll either be lacking sleep, or they're under severe stress, or they're mm. um, and that's something that we see a lot with you know th- people that get into nootropics. I actually, you know, we were talking about patients. I actually literally had somebody today who has a morning, so I do 24-hour cortisols on just about everybody. And I also do, I think we we spoke briefly about this neurotransmitter testing. Now, urinary neurotransmitters are, they're not by any stretch 100% correlated with CSF. And people that have tried to measure them in isolation have found no correlation at all. However, if you begin to combine those measurements with with cortisol measurements, with other hormones, with an extremely in-depth clinical interview, then you're going to get something from there. And just today, in fact, I had somebody who's wakening, who isn't sleeping at all at night. She's finding great difficulty in getting to sleep before 4 a.m. Wakes up after three or four hours, finds herself wired but knowing she's got to sleep or she won't be able to function and then struggling to get back to sleep so she's sleeping between four and five and a half hours at night she wants a sleeping pill or sleeping medication or something to do with replacing GABA or something such as that. But I say, okay, but what are we going to do about this morning wakening cortisol that's double normal? Her second cortisol taken at around 11 was literally off the chart. So there's an arrow pointing off the chart at the top of the chart. And then from the rest of the time, she is not able to bring it down at all, but she's still looking for that fix. This is a person that needs to look at an entire lifestyle reset. There is no way that taking any kind of nootropic at bedtime or taking any kind of uh, cortisol regulator during the day or any sort of adaptogen is going to get help. But that's what she's looking for. So being able to educate people about what needs to be done from a totality becomes the new thing. Mm. So how do you go about when there's so many changes that need to be made, it can be very overwhelming for, for a client. So how do you, how do you go about um, implementing, you know, those micro changes? Like what's your um, strategy there? Yeah, that's a great question because it's got a different answer for every different person. Mm. 
So I try to meet everybody where they're at, Lucas. I try to do some sort of assessment about what do you want and where are you ready to start? So for a person like this, clearly, if I were to give her an entire program, it would she would be so overwhelmed, it would be bye, see you later. Um, so where is she at? She wants something small to begin with. So I would give her, find something to give her some relief and then meet with her fairly soon thereafter and say, hey, that felt good, but how about if we did this and then maybe bring some of the bottom-up practices in? What Have you ever played sports? Have you ever been involved in exercise? Have you ever thought about taking a morning walk? And begin to slowly bring things in that people like because if we look at it from a neuroscience point of view, what I'm really doing is trying to slip in activity to create dopamine. And then in males to help with testosterone ultimately. But I'm also trying to develop a mindset here. Each time someone accomplishes a small step, they're gonna feel good about it. Mm. And my goal is to really get people ignited and excited about doing for themselves something that they were just reliant on a pill bottle for before. Mm. So it depends where they're at and then a little at a time. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that, that definitely, that makes sense. Um, yeah. So what about in the, in the scenario, I, I don't know if you've had much experience with like um, PTSD sort of patients, like um, do you want to sort of explore, you know, I, I, this is, brand new to me because I've never really delved into this field, but I'd love to learn more about how you go about um, managing, uh, although obviously, obviously every case is different, what, what does a PTSD patient look like and how would you sort of go about that? Another great question because uh, so psychiatry, particularly the DSM people, um, have gotten into labeling uh, and putting labels on different things at different times. And again, that is, I'm sorry, but it's a moneymaker for the American Psychiatric Association. They've made hundreds of millions of dollars from different versions of DSM. Hmm. If you just say PTSD by itself, then you're going to have a question like that. Well, what is it exactly, right? It, the diagnosis doesn't tell you about the person. So the first thing I want to know is, is this person... Um, showing signs, I take the T out of the PTSD and it's trauma. Yeah. So I look to see the impact of trauma. Is there evidence of trauma in this person's life? And I do this as a, actually a screening question for everyone. How do I define trauma? I define trauma as overwhelming emotional events occurring at particular stages of development in which someone has been alone in that experience and not had anybody to work through with it. Now, if you take that, that's a different that's a different version of DSM. DSM says, "Oh, we need to have some, you know, life-threatening event." Well, what's life-threatening to one person is not to another. But if we look at trauma overwhelming our minds, our psychology, and even our brains, so neuroscience is involved here too, because if 
that trauma gets wired in. If that state of too muchness, I can't handle it and I'm helpless and all alone in it, which leads to hopelessness. If that gets wired in at any particular age in development from birth till late adulthood, we've just defined trauma. Wow. So the first step is getting that proper definition. And what I'm finding, here's another patient I can tell you about today. Um, it was a rich day. Um, a person that had um, a mother that had been unavailable and alcoholic for much of his life. And then a father that had literally walked out of his life. So this, he was essentially raising himself in, as an orphan. Well, he... Uh, emotional orphan in a sense, um, but almost a complete one. So he had done his best, worked his way into life, gotten a good job. He had a young, he has a younger brother. When the second child came along, when his second child came along, he's now married, gainfully employed, doing well. His second child comes along he realizes at the same time that he didn't have a father. Now he's the father of a second child. He regresses all the way back and becomes and feels like that little boy that's been left and abandoned and completely unable to function. So trauma is the going back and reliving literally that, that time with all the attendant emotions in it, expecting the same solutions that one had when one was at that age. So when we start to see that happening, that's trauma. And that's where we have to really aggressively intervene. Wow. Jeez. Just the way you, yeah, the way you described that and um, just framed it really, that's like, I've never heard it sort of expressed in that fashion before. Just, yeah, really phenomenal how you um, frame that because, yeah, I mean, even some things are, you know, popping up for me personally, although this is not a consultation, it's still like, you know, triggering some things for me, which is which is really powerful. Um, but my question, Michael, is like around the fact that trauma is inevitable. Like as we're growing up, we're all eventually going to experience some degree of trauma. And you sort of said, that it's that feeling of too muchness and also feeling alone, not working through it or not. What does, what does working through it look like at a young age though? At a young age, I think working through is impossible by oneself. I think that's where the need for someone going back to where we started the security of a relationship and a relationship in which someone is there and is able to understand and then is able to explain Mo almost not almost i'm going to take out that word and be an absolutist here for a minute even though <laughs> it's it's unscientific to be an absolutist right but um I've never seen, let's put it that way, someone that has been traumatized or gone through it at a young age without feeling like it's their fault. Right. That they've caused it. And that's in large part the function that the person that understands them can bring. It's not your fault that this happened to you. Something, somebody that was had this very bad impulse that did this thing without thinking about you and how that would impact you 
has hurt you badly, but you did not cause it. Mm -hmm. So that's the message as a, to a very young child. And then to be there in a continuing way as this trauma becomes manifest, because people will relive and relive and relive it until or unless someone is there explaining it. Right. So that's number one. But later on in life, I think I think your question kind of bookends different age groups here. Later on in life, it becomes if one begins to real to really feel like, hey, there's a there's a number of criteria. I'll give you three or four. If people begin to feel like they're taken over by something and begin to act, well, begin to feel like they're taken over by something that they can't explain. Number one. Number two, am I acting in ways that don't feel like me? Number three, does this feeling feel like too much, like more than I can handle? This may be manifested as a panic attack. It may be manifested as a, a crisis in a relationship. It may be manifested as being fired at a job and not knowing why. Um, but I just feel different. I don't feel like me or am I, have I done something that is completely out of character? So those are signs. And I would say, if I would add a fifth one. Am I feeling when I wake up in the morning till the time of day, like someone has switched a channel in my head, taken a remote control and switched a channel. Do I feel like I'm on a different channel? If you have one of those, if you have those five criteria, you're probably, you've shifted into a trauma mindset. And in that, that's the time to become, first of all, awareness is key and critical. So that's why I'm taking time to go over these. Okay, then what? If if we don't know, if we've never encountered, if we've never had help with this, we, that's the point where we need to seek help. And back to your idea, your, your, uh, your, the, the concept we were talking about, about vulnerability, that's where the courage step takes place. We have to let ourselves feel like we're in the grips of something that may be greater than us. That, and we're in pain here. So we can't start beating ourselves up, which is a, another sort of characteristic. If it's my fault, then I'm going to be very hard on myself and beat the hell out of myself with the biggest hammer I can find. <laughs> so avoiding that step also becomes critical. And then when we start to go inside ourselves and really begin to feel that, that's where the courage takes place. That's where we have to let down our guard not try to power through it, not try to deny it, not try to sweep it under the rug, but open ourselves up to that. That's where vulnerability lies. And that's where true emotional vulnerability is because people get the notion of vulnerable being open to injury, right? I mean, that's what we typically can associate the word vulnerable with that's very different than being open to our own feelings because our own feelings aren't going to injure us mm. very well very well said i mean i'm just thinking about now um some of the potential consequences of not working through this sort of stuff as people progress with their lives you know get into relationships and <clears throat> start new jobs and there's still this underlying 
unresolved issue that is actually heavily influencing the way that they're behaving on a day-to-day basis without even knowing. That's what you're sort of saying. Lucas, that's the power of the unconscious because our unconscious mind is constantly working and our conscious mind is really just there to attach a post hoc meaning to our behavior or our feeling. Mm. In fact, if we go back to some of the research and we look at uh, Daniel Kahneman's, for example, fast brain, slow brain, that he actually won a Nobel Prize for in 2004, I believe, three or four, for in economics. He's a cognitive psychologist that leaned heavily on the unconscious in terms of decision making. So, and he won a Nobel Prize for that in economics. I, I want to emphasize that. Why? Because we are consciously making, unconsciously making choices and decisions, including purchases in his, in his papers, right? Uh, consciously, uh, unconsciously making these decisions up to 10 seconds before we're even aware of them. Hmm. We think we're in control, but we're not. So a big part of my work is to try to bring the unconscious into a more conscious realm. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly true of people that have been traumatized and and especially true for achieving maximal performance. Because in your scenario that you just put out, a new job, a new relationship, a new commitment, if you're living with this and you're not aware of it, it's going to dominate you and you won't know it. Mm. So, Mike, I'd like to I'd like to delve into um, how do we actually know? Let's say we've started working through some of these traumas. How do how does one know if they've resolved or there's resolution? So, I don't know if it's ever possible to say the end. <laughs> I wish I could say that, <laughs> but even me at my age, I, I'm proud to say that I still talk to somebody once a week. I mean, this is like 30 years later and I find it helpful because I've got a different view of trauma and a different view of development. I feel like it's a continuous birth to death process that doesn't end. So I embrace the process of doing so. And I think if we can, think about ourselves learning a little bit at a time with the compassion. So another person that's been a mentor of mine, Gabor Matei, he's actually an addiction specialist. He has the term compassionate inquiry about addiction. It's not the addiction, it's the pain. And the way that we get to the pain is through compassionate inquiry. And if we can establish that as a prototypical way of being and thinking about ourselves, then it becomes a journey of growth. And then what we can actually do, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, is potentially transforming that energy from the pain into energy for discovery. That's, that is, that, that's cool. That, that really, that excites me because that's like, Honestly, Michael, that's what I've been saying. Like, I've recorded this on a couple of other podcasts. Is I've said that there's this flame that I have. Yes. That flame, it, there's a flame inside me. It's a burning, 
desire to discover something, not to benefit me, but to benefit. It's almost like now it's come to a point where um, instead of trying to help myself, it's like if I discover something that's going to benefit like millions of people, it feels like that benefit will somehow come back onto me. It's a really, it's a weird phenomenon. Not weird at all. It is, I think it's a very high level of growth because then we're able to embrace our mistakes too. We're able to embrace our failures because they don't, they don't bring us the shame anymore. You know, I guess you can reference even Brene Brown on this one. Right. But (laughs) I don't know how much she's talked about men actually, but at your point to your point, then the discovery becomes the reward. And so it's discovering something to be able to give out to the world that becomes far, that brings far more energy than initially that pain that drove, that drove us to get there. That makes sense. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, Cause I mean, that, that feeling for me was so strong in the, in the raw part of when I stopped playing soccer, when I quit that the year to two years following, oh, it was like, brutal. oh, it was insane. And you would be able to relate to that with, you know, <clears throat> in the rawest of times. Um, that's when that, that was actually when my motivation and desire to achieve was super high. In fact, it was so, so strong that that power that you're talking about that, um, I was actually concerned with my level of motivation. It was actually scary strong. Scary. <laughs> yeah. So you were already transforming grief, grief, loss, loss of identity, all of that. You were already, your mind had already clicked into transformation mode. That's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was powerful. Uh, so, I mean, obviously we've, we've delved into like um, some really – really captivating stuff around trauma. Um, but Mike, I'd love to hear about some of your, some, some phenomenal clinic experiences that you've had, like maybe, I don't know, you've, you've seen a patient only once and you've seen this sort of outcome, like just share some of these, you know, really exciting and rewarding experiences. Yeah. So part of why I mentioned psychoanalysis is that initially, um, you know, conservative psychoanalysis, which I have nothing to do with anymore, classical psychoanalysis, is very sort of um, uh, dogmatically driven and it's very theory driven. And I feel like it's become very stultifying. But the study of it allowed for a a really tremendous understanding of human development and the unconscious. So I'm very glad I studied it, but I don't practice it anymore. That being said, people, like you say, can come one time or people can be with me for years, depending on their needs, their goals, how far they want to go and so forth. So, I would say one of the most formative cases was the one that my very good friend and um, colleague Bob Lipsight, uh, he's the he was a reporter or sports the sports reporter for the New York Times, and in back in his day he was probably the top the top reporter uh, in, in sports, 
He did Muhammad Ali's biography back in the day, Mickey Mantle's biography. I mean, he was he was in on the top people. So he and I were sitting at a panel one day and in New York and I was giving my paper and he was sort of giving the his sort of point of view from the outside, from the inside outside, right? So we got together afterwards but uh, to, to actually write a book. But within that Within that period of time, Lucas, I had uh, someone had seen this, or someone had had known about this back in Michigan, where I was where I was uh, living, and I got a call in the middle of the night one night, and I got a call about an NHL hockey player that had taken an overdose of uh, antidepressants, and these were tricyclic antidepressants, so these were antidepressants that would kill you by impacting your heart rhythm. So he was in the intensive care unit and I was called by his physician to come two or three in the morning, whatever it was, to come down and see him and evaluate him. Couldn't get much of an evaluation because he was unresponsive, but I was able to speak to people around him. This was a suicide attempt by a professional athlete. And this I've come to learn I call them parasuicides. People at very high levels will do very self-destructive things out of pain because if anyone tries to inculcate this notion of no emotion, it's someone in a professional athlete field, or at least it used to be. Fortunately, it's starting to change. But I started to work with him, and then Bob wrote that up for the Times. But what I that taught me so much about how early trauma that gets triggered within his band of brothers within the locker room. Turns out that the captain of the team was being sexual with his fiance, and this was what precipitated this. And he had no way of being able to deal with this. But that led to an entire lifetime of trauma that this man had endured and served as sort of a model for me of being able to just go through the steps that we had talked about. Now, he ultimately went on to have uh, become an NHL all-star and become someone that had very, very high levels of performance but he kept injuring himself. And what I was convinced about was that the unconscious trauma that was buried within him was leading, again, subconsciously to doing things inadvertently that were leading to injury. So once we got to that and once we were able to open that up, then he actually ended up retiring because he had had multiple, you know, at, at least three significant surgeries and and concussions by that time. He had by that time um, sort of lost the step, lost the proverbial step, right? And decided to retire, but became happy, settled, and a good father Mm. and later coach. So that's the sort of transformation that's possible to go from being in an intensive care unit in a hospital, barely alive, to ultimately being someone that is able to work through all of that. So uh, that literally happened while I was still in training. 
and um, really proved to be a cornerstone of of an area that I got to be significantly interested in. Mm, fascinating. Yeah. Well, I'm curious to know, like some other. I know we've sort of explored some of the you know psychoanalysis things that you um, looked at. I'm curious, to know, and also the cortisol testing. Um, I'm curious to know what else you have, um, you know, that you utilize as part of your um, treatment or understanding a person. Because I know you mentioned understanding a person, making them feel like they're understood um, is important. So, what else do you do to dive into understanding a, a client? Yeah. So, I, again, that's. Um I love the question because each of your questions has a different starting point. There's no algorithm to it. So um, what I always do is listen. Like 99.9% of what I do at the beginning is, well, there's two things I do. I really work to establish a connection and then the two things we talked about earlier, and the second is just to listen and listen very intently. And I listen to what's being said, what's not being said, what's being, uh, what's the verbal, what's the nonverbal, and how people are able to express themselves and connect. So I'm very, very conscious of listening very intently. But part of my listening also now has come to involve looking. And the looking involves looking at labs. I do a deep dive into their physical labs, their physiology. I mentioned the neurotransmitters, the cortisol. I look deeply into hormones. I look into um, all of their inflammatory markers. I look into uh, micronutrients, very similar to the kinds of things that you've been talking about, and do look at all the labs I can, including if we need to, gut health. So those, the tests that I will order almost always include gut health, include brain health in cortisol and stress. Um, if they have wearables, I begin to look at the function of their autonomic nervous system. What's their HRV? What is going, what's their, what, what can we learn about what's happening inside their body Everything starts in the brain and starts from a neural basis, but what's the brain telling the body to do and what's the body signaling to the brain? Mm -hmm. So it's listening to the patient and looking inside the patient both. Once that's done, I have coaches that begin to work on sort of the bottom up. And for this, I thank people like yourself, people like Andrew Huberman, people that are bringing so many of these insights into existence that we need to look at okay sleep we need to look at light we need to look at exercise we need to look at diet and its influences we need to look at timing of all of these things and how they fit together and then we need to look at so that's the bottom up that i have coaches do a lot of work with and as they're doing that i get the labs back and i begin to start to look at the patterns that are emerging. As these labs are coming back, I'm talking to the patient and I'm looking to see, feel, hear, and sense what they're telling me. So I'm putting together sort of a top-down approach that involves neuroscience, but it also involves 
what's the unconscious doing? I'm looking at trauma. I'm looking at psychology. Yes, I'll even give a nod to psychiatry because sometimes medications are absolutely needed for hopefully for a bridge, but sometimes for longer. So I, those five parts of, of the mental part and, and then integrating them all together and working together as a team with the patient. I don't act like an oracle. I act as a teammate. Mm, yeah, I really, I really respect that approach. Um, and it very much mirrors the way that uh, we as naturopaths are trained to consider the patient holistically, um, all-encompassing and also non-reductionist uh, mindset. Um, which is which is amazing, really. Like, it's great to connect with people like yourself who also view the body in that way. Um, which is, you know, that there's there are many elements to one's state of being, and it's not just simply one single, uh, new, you know, neurotransmitter deficiency, uh, for example. So, Michael, my my final question to you, and this may be putting you on the spot, but what is um, what is one area of research that you're really excited to see more research on? Like, is, it, is there a particular area or space or field that you're really excited to see more research on? Wow, that's, a, that's probably your toughest question for an integrative guy. <laughs> <laughs> if I was a, uh, a vertical thinker, I'd have a quick answer for you. <laughs> um, and I don't want to take the easy way out and come and say, I want more, I would love more data and studies on an integrative method because that's a lazy man's way to answer your question too. So I'm going to be personal about this. I think that so much can be done, Lucas, if we look at ways to tap into the unconscious in other words, I think we're only at the beginning. It, I think it's a fallacy to think that the unconscious stays unconscious. I would like very much, and I would like to orient my work very much into how we do that. What are all the ways we can do that? We know some of them already. We know that they involve reading the body and reading and feeling the body and feeling what our body signals are. We also know we talked about trauma. We can also be aware of those kinds of things. We can also have exercises we do. For example, in learning, we can go to bed at night having studied something that makes us interested and excited to wake up the next morning and then go to sleep. So we don't drain ourselves at night, but we have something. And our minds work on that concept overnight, and we wake up with a creative thought. We've just made the unconscious conscious. I'm just giving you small examples, but I would love to see research really. This is Freud's, Freud and William James. Those were the two fathers of psychiatry. Uh, they both knew that the unconscious existed for different reasons. They came out of different ways. But now we are very accepting of that. But there is so much power in that that we haven't even begun to tap into. Mm, wow. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll try and, try and keep my eyes and, and brain on the lookout for research in that space as well because I haven't, I haven't personally delved into it at all. I mean, I've just sort of neglected it. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it excites me as well just to 
from your stories and, you know, what you've shared and the things that you've done with certain clients and the way you've helped not only yourself but other people, that, I mean, that really, really inspires me to, you know, do something similar. So I guess, Michael, um, if my listeners want to, you know, connect with you, learn more about you, um, where, can they, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm at um, themilitechcenter.com is my uh, is my clinic, and you can get me through that. It's my website. They can get me through my website. I've got uh, information there. I'm happy to answer any emails personally. I'm happy to respond. As you know, I do that, and as do you on uh, on Instagram already. Happy to answer questions. Happy to take. Um, suggestions and and criticisms. <laughs> so <laughs> get me through there. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Michael Militic. I, that's where I do like you. I do a very similar platform of teaching small things at small in small pieces. So uh, those are the two places that are I'm mostly available. Amazing, amazing, awesome. Well, Michael, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. It's been um very insightful, very emotionally, you know awakening for me and and i hope for my listeners as well i think this was kind of a different episode to usual but i think you know a a lot of my listeners will really really enjoy this so mike just want to say thanks again well thank you so much lucas i mean i I, as you know i'm uh, deeply respectful and deeply fond of you so anytime we can come back i'd love to do it awesome Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 